By now, I'm sure you've heard about the Progressive Bitcoiners' partnership with SunExchange, the solar cell leasing platform that is bringing solar power to businesses and communities in South Africa. It turns out signing up is incredibly easy, and having recently done so, I was excited to see that I could help fund their new project, which is providing solar energy to Group Constantia, South Africa's oldest winery. Why would a winery do this? Well, it's simple, to maintain their commitment to conservation while meeting the unique energy demands of a vineyard. With Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin and make a positive impact on the planet. With their new partnership, I'm hoping maybe we can earn bottles of wine back instead. But in the meantime, I'll take some sats. And lucky for you, progressive Bitcoiner listeners, get a free solar cell with their first purchase at thesunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner. So this is a forward calculation. So this is one Bitcoin mining company using landfills. So their estimate is that in this is one company. In the next six years, they can mitigate the release of 143 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. That's simply through Bitcoin mining using landfill gas. Uh, so that'd be the equivalent of planting 2.3 billion trees and having them grow for 10 years. It'd be the equivalent of taking 31 million cars off the road. That's what one landfill gas mitigating company using Bitcoin mining can do within six years. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Daniel Batten. Daniel's an entrepreneur, coach, climate tech venture capitalist, and author. He's a lifelong environmental advocate who has lent an objective eye to Bitcoin's environmental impact. What I find most beneficial about Daniel's research is not necessarily the data itself, but the manner in which he presents it, without an agenda or pretense. Before the recording of this podcast, I felt Daniel was one of the best voices in the Bitcoin and environment discussion, and our conversation only solidified that sentiment. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode with Daniel Batten. All right, Daniel Batten, welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm happy to have you. Yeah, really happy to be here. I've been looking forward to it. Thank you. Well, listening to your conversations, podcasts that you've been on, it quickly became clear to me that your approach, not just to Bitcoin, but your life in general, would appear to be unique and special in some way. There's this whole other side of your personal and professional career outside of your research on Bitcoin, where you have served as a coach to leaders and tech entrepreneurs. And I gather that there were some formative experiences that led you to this position. I'm hoping you could share one that stands out to you that served as an impetus for you to believe that you could best serve others through this coaching capacity. Yeah, sure. So I was running my own technology company. I'd been involved in, it was the third team of people who were in a startup and through a combination of good luck and having a good team, actually all of those companies managed to exit at some stage, but I was running one that I'd started. So I was the CEO of that company. And it was actually about that time that my father died of bowel cancer. And so I was at his funeral and you don't go through an experience like that without really questioning some pretty deep stuff. And there was a woman who came up to me, a Maori elder, and she basically looked me right in the eye and said, everyone's been asking me 
um, who's going to continue your father's work now that he's gone? And I've told everyone that it's you. Now, to put things in context, my father had been doing things completely different to what I'd been doing. I basically rebelled against my parents by becoming a technology entrepreneur uh, because they'd been artists. They, uh, My father had worked in theater for a long time and he'd worked with people, really the human potential as a coach, as a trainer, as a theater director, helping people realize their potential, their creative potential. And he traveled around the world doing that and had been very successful and gained a lot of renown doing that. So part of what I was doing was, yes, I was running a tech company, but to be honest, part of what I was doing was avoiding wanting to be in my dad's shadow. And this woman just came up and she nailed me. She saw it and she said, no, your mission is not to do what you're doing now. It's to help people reach their potential. And I had one of these moments where I knew she was right, but man, I wish she wasn't because that was a kind of an inconvenient thing to say after a started a tech company and we'd raise capital and I was like, oh man, I've got to tell my board, I'm going to step down and all these things. And of course, I didn't want to do it right away. I wanted to do it responsibly, but I knew she was right. I I had felt it anyway. And so over the course of the next year, I moved out of my role as a CEO. I found someone to replace me who I would say grew up more successfully than I could have myself because she had the passion that I was no longer feeling for it. And I moved into this whole new area of coaching people, really knowing nothing. So it was starting from scratch. And over the next 10, 15 years or so, started to work out how best I could help people and came to the astonishing realization that maybe the people I got to help with people like me, other technology entrepreneurs. And so for about a decade, I worked with other founders of technology companies, helping them with all the things that you really need help with and frankly, never get help with when you're running a tech company. And that's not just the sales and the running the company. and It's all the stuff that really causes a lot of technology companies to fail. And that's the people side. That's, hey, I'm having this argument with my co-founder. Hey, we have different, we're pulling in different directions. I, I cannot unify my board properly. I'm trying to raise capital at the same time as I'm trying to grow my team. I seem to be the breaking point. I don't seem to have people behind me who think like business owners. I don't know how to have this challenging conversation to clear the air with this person, or um, I don't seem to be able to excite people's imagination to get our next round of capital as easily as we did with our seed investment. So these are things that come down to mindset and skill set. They're things that come down to our ability to communicate or our ability to influence other people or, or ourselves half the time. And, and also how to do all of that in a way where you don't have to work these crazy hours along the journey. Uh, because even if you were one of the 20% who ended up with your exit, or less than 20%, most of them had worked outrageous hours to get there. They had sacrificed, in many cases, their marriage, their relationship with their kids, their health, their well-being. And that's not things you can easily just put back into place when you have your exit, uh, because you've become, as Aristotle says, we become what we habitually do. So if you spend seven years of your life becoming a one-dimensional technology entrepreneur, it's pretty hard to undo that over the course of a lifetime. So I really wanted to help people to find a way to do all those things where they didn't have to just simply double down on hours and reach for this variable called time uh, to try and make things successful, but they could use better forms of currency, uh, such as prioritization or such as communication or such as clarity of intention to be able to navigate their way through this very difficult tech territory of being a leader of a technology company. So that's what I spent a long time doing. 
um, had some good success doing that. And I, I think the thing that I'm most proud of doing that is not necessarily the number of companies that have exited, but the number of people who have become happy individuals along the way who now stand out as beacons to other technology entrepreneurs to say you don't have to put uh, big aspects of yourself on hold to try and achieve just this one-dimensional business goal. When you stepped into this role, were there lessons that came back to you that your father had taught you that came back to life now that you were doing in, in some manner what he had done? Yeah, there a whole lot, actually. Uh, it was really funny. Like I remember the first time I ever had a leadership role in a software company, and my leadership training was basically, okay, now you're a leader, go lead. In other words, nothing, which is what most people get. So I had this person in my team who had been really struggling to make any impact at all when he was visiting customers. And I was like, man, what do I do with this person? And I just asked myself the question, what would my dad have done? And that was the only question I needed to ask. And I thought, well, he would have done this thing called a role reversal. So he would have said to the person, okay, you have to become the customer now. And I'm going to communicate to you as if I'm you. And you're going to experience from the customer's perspective what it's like to experience the way you've been communicating to them. And I did that, took him through the process. And, and he had this um, light bulb moment where suddenly he could see that it wasn't just about saying what was technologically possible or not. It was about you have some emphasis to say that in a way where people can receive that information and they don't feel you're being negative or that you're putting them down or that you're implying they're an idiot. Um, or that you appear to be putting obstacles in the path rather than being solution-centered. So he he saw all of that in 20 minutes, and his his entire behavior changed. We never had an issue with him in a customer site again. So there's been many times when I've I've just followed his lead and thought, what would he have done, and and found that I had those answers. That's pretty special. This Maori leader that uh, or elder that you met at your dad's funeral, you said that help that she helped allow you to see the mistakes that you had made in the past. Could you tell us what those mistakes were? Yeah, well, one of the the big mistakes was a lot of what I'd done, yes, I'd quote unquote achieved things in business, but it was, there was a lot of relentlessness, well, relentlessness is the wrong wrong word, feverishness, I would say. Feverishness to to achieve a certain goal. And and there's nothing wrong with goal setting. Goal setting is essential in life. A ship without a rudder cannot leave the harbor. But I was very attached to the outcomes of these goals. And as a result, sometimes wouldn't see where I was using a strategy to knock down a brick wall by beating my head against it until either the brick wall fell down or I did. And the way that I do things now, and this is really what got behind me getting into doing Bitcoin research, I didn't have a goal at the start of the year to be doing what I'm doing now. I didn't write down on my New Year's resolution, I want to do deep research into Bitcoin and the environment. I had no interest in doing that at all. But it was it came out of just responding in the moment to the things that were happening around me. And that led me very quickly to the realization that what I wanted to do is, is I just wanted to do some research for its own sake, for no objective, but simply to answer a question that I had a lack of certainty about, which is I had people on one side, my environmentalist friends who were saying Bitcoin's terrible for the environment. And I had my Bitcoiner friends saying, no, no, it helps to build out the renewable grid. I'm saying, we can't both be right. Um, Maybe the truth is halfway in the middle, but I need to find out my own answers. And I just decided that even though it wasn't a goal I had, I was just going to follow that intuitive thought and see what, what happens. What happens if I just spend a lot of time going deep into this and finding my own answer? 
So that was actually an example of not having an end in mind, not having a goal in mind, but just doing something that gave me joy to do um, and something that was really just following an intuitive impulse. And more and more these days, I try and live my life by um, doing things which I just enjoy doing, following intuitive impulses. And if it's not something I'd anticipated doing, it doesn't mean it's a tangent. doesn't mean it's a distraction. It could be. Uh, it could just mean that there's something better that I should be doing than I could have conceived in my rational mind when I sat down and I wrote down some goals. One of the lessons that you talk about is also not prejudging other people's ideas as not great as yours and therefore yours are better, yeah. but just simply saying, what are the ideas? We don't know the answer. Let's get to testing. How has that sentiment carried over into your life as a VC as well as your approach to Bitcoin? Yeah, I, I think that's something I, I was very lucky. I learned that early on. I had a very um, rationalist, materialist uh, belief system growing up. And my stepmother introduced me to meditation, which I was totally against, basically tricked me into meditating, um, invited me to this hall of people. I thought it was just going to be a talk. And then they started meditating halfway through. And I was about to, how do I leave this? I was looking from aisle to aisle and I couldn't. I was like, all right, I'll do this stupid meditation thing. But I, and I had an amazing experience. And, and that taught me um, the, the danger of prejudging things and how the only sort of knowledge you can really gain that has any value is experiential. And so, again, with the Bitcoin thing, it was about really not prejudging and realizing that I'd come to some appalling conclusions myself through prejudging something from the outside. It's a little bit like if, if I see, if you offer me ice cream and you say, hey, have some ice cream, I'm like, well, what's in it? And you show me the ingredients and I try and form an impression of what it's going to taste like by reading, by researching the ingredients. I can only form a concept in my mind. And I say, well, it sounds terrible. It's got all these different things. I don't want to eat that. And you say, man, just try it. And so I'm not going to try it. It sounds awful. So unless you have that experiential um, knowledge, you, you can't make an assessment. So in, in the same way, how it's carried over in life is I always remember that my own, and again, I'll use Bitcoin as an example. My first response to Bitcoin when I read the first article about it and its energy use was, oh, this sounds terrible. Uh, this sounds like something that's um, terrible for the environment. And, and I remind myself of that because that was my initial response. It turned out to be a very wrong response. But I remind myself of that to, to, to help me stay humble, to realize how easy it is to form a false impression because our knowledge and our impressions of things is based on the circle of people that we connect with, uh, what we deem to be trusted information sources, and it's that's harder and harder to work out these days. And it's to do with certain narratives that we may or may not be susceptible to, and we can make mistakes so easily. Anyone can. And so what I find happens a lot is that uh, I'm not interested in debates. I, I'm really not. Um, someone asked me to be on this Twitter podcast, and I had a look at it, and the, the style, it was just debates. No one was listening to each other at all. And I thought, well, what's the point of that? It might, might be entertaining. It might get a lot of people listening to it for the, for the intellectual blood sport they're witnessing, the gladiatorial intellectual combat. But, but no one's listening to each other. What's the point? So the key thing for me is it's about staying curious. Someone else may have something that I haven't thought of um, that's a valid point. I may be wrong at any one point in time because my knowledge is incomplete. My knowledge is a fraction of the knowledge that exists in the universe. 
So if, if I stay humble, if I stay um, aware that I could be wrong, that makes me better able to listen to other people. If I stay empathetic and realize that um, everyone has a right to believe whatever they believe, whether right or wrong, and who's to judge that, then we're at least going to stay in empathy and have some better chance of listening. And there's also a better chance of reciprocation. There's a better chance that if I'm genuinely curious in what they have to say, they're more likely to be genuinely curious. You can't guarantee it. And what I have to say as well. Um, and I find that leads to, to, to some better conversations, but it also leads to some good decisions about what discussions not to enter into. If it feels like someone has already, I liken it to, if you're going to bake some cookies, forming an intellectual viewpoint on something is a little bit like baking cookies. You can, right up until the point you put them in the oven and start baking them, you can change the, the, the ingredients, right? So if you work out you've left out some sugar or some salt, you can put it in. But once you've actually baked in the oven, you can't. And in the same way, once someone has, has hard baked their viewpoint, whether they, there was a key ingredient left out or not, it's kind of a little bit late to put it in. They've already decided the neural pathways are too strongly formed. And that's not going to be a good use of my energy to try and have a discussion with that person because they're already so wedded to, to, to telling me that the cookies they've based are amazing. Even though I say, no, I've tasted one, they taste terrible. They missed out the sugar. Because they, for them to accept that would have to mean, well, backtracking on a lot of work they've done or, or a lot of uh, vested interest they've had in, in their own uh, way of doing things for a long time. And a lot of their circle of friends and their belief systems. And so people have very vested interests in believing what they believe, myself included. So we have to constantly check that out and, and, and ask if we're really being honest and why we believe what we believe. There's this clear thread in your life where demonstrating advocacy for others and the environment. So I'd like to touch a little bit upon your climate activism journey. Yeah. Can you recall the moment when caring about the environment first struck you? <laughs> Yeah, four years old. <laughs> Honestly, um, my uh, mother was living out in a community where there was a rubbish tip proposed, uh, and it was going to be put in the local wetlands, which is like the worst place you can put, put, possibly put it, not even a landfill, just a tip. And the locals got up in arms, and they bonded together and basically fought against it, and they won. And, and I remember that time. It was one of my foremost um, memories of just, just the community forming. And the community formed because they had a, a common um, threat to that community, which they needed to bond together in order to, to fight. And then I just remember throughout my childhood, just being involved in, in numerous different uh, protest marches, which I'd get taken on first by my parents, then I'd go on them by myself. And they could be any number of things from Indigenous rights to uh, protesting against a, a rugby tour from South Africa based in, back in the apartheid era. To then the the introduction of um, student fees in the university, I was there when it went from state funded to to private. Um, to you had to get a loan to cover your education, and any manner of different protests. So there was no one event, but a lot of them, the ones that I resonated most strongly with and always cared about the most, was when the environment was at threat. And I think that comes back to that very first formative experience as a four year old, and seeing how a community can have through lack of thorough thought some ideas imposed upon it, which really threaten the entire community. Um, that would have made the entire area where children swam unswimmable. It would have made the, the place just a horrible environment to be in. And it would have resulted in, in the destruction of a lot of natural habitat. And I also learned that it's possible by getting together, a small group of people can actually oppose something and use their intelligence to win. 
And the cool thing about it was I also realized that they didn't win through anger. They didn't win through violence. They they won through using their heads and, and being smart. And people did research and alternatives and proposed alternative solutions. So they didn't just look at the problem. They looked at alternatives, how they could help the council solve the problem. They looked at legal angles. And in the end, they won legally because they showed that legally what the council was proposing wouldn't work. So that, that always formed a really deep impression on me. And so I learned that um, the environment is something to be protected. Where I grew up, it was a very beautiful place. And it was both an incredible idyllic childhood in some ways, but also a difficult one in others. It was idyllic because the place we lived in was so beautiful. It was challenging because there weren't actually that many other children around. And so a lot of what I bonded with was more nature than other people. Um, so it was it was a key part of of who I was. And and still to this day, it's where I go for rejuvenation um, whenever I can. It's just walks in nature. So it's, it's just a core part of, of who I am. And so whenever that's threatened, um, that's something that I'll have an opinion about, whether that's um, writing letters to the editor, whether that's getting on protest marches, whether that's grabbing a megaphone and shouting on a beach about offshore drilling, uh, whether that's joining a Greenpeace action, um, doesn't really matter. Uh, but if it's going to have an impact, then I want to be part of finding something I believe in. Well, it seems like a fitting combination then that you started a venture capital fund with that focus of protecting uh, the environment, the Exponential Founders Fund. What is the process by which you evaluate a company to ensure it is, as you say, changing the planet for the better? Yeah, that, that's been a lot of fun because uh, that was bringing two worlds together and realizing that, hey, this this stuff that I've done a lot of in the technology sector, we can actually use some of this technology to do some really cool stuff that can help the environment. And I don't believe that technology is a whole solution. I'm not a technocrat. Um, social change and and people are the solution, but people create technology. And so technology is also a part of the solution. And so what we look at with these technologies is, of course, we've got to make sure they tick the will it get a return from investor box. Um, but if that's all we're doing, that's of, of no real interest to me. There's a lot of um, technology out there that can get a good return to investors, but it doesn't really do anything which is a net positive for the environment. It might be neutral, but it's not net positive. So we would start to ask ourselves questions such as, well, can this mitigate emissions? You know, our biggest challenge right now is climate change. So, so are we investing in technologies that can help to slow down climate change? And so we invested in, I'll give you an example of two. One was a technology, which uh, not many people know this, but most of the world's horticultural growth of certain foods, such as tomatoes, such as a whole number of fruit and vegetables, are grown in these massive, um, technologically optimized industrial scale greenhouses. Which, which have technology to the hilt to optimize the nutrient flow, the water, the heating, and the carbon dioxide. Because plants like extra carbon dioxide to grow. And guess where they get carbon dioxide from? Natural gas. So these are all, every time you're eating a tomato, there's a carbon footprint. Of course, there's a carbon footprint from the transport, but the biggest part of it is actually the carbon footprint of the natural gas that was burnt to supply the heat and the carbon dioxide. So there's one company who says, well, hang on, we can do something that's carbon neutral. We can use slash from the forestry industry, a byproduct which would have decayed into carbon dioxide anyway. So we're not taking natural gas out of the ground. We can burn that. We can separate out the clean CO2 from the stuff that's not clean. We can 
pump that clean CO2 into greenhouses and we can carbon we can make the entire industrial greenhouse industry carbon neutral we can reduce 50% of emissions by 2030 and that has a significant impact on an entire ecosystem so these are the sorts of things that we like to get behind things that can have transformative effects on whole industry sectors another example is a is um, a really smart group of people who are chemical engineers who have worked out a way to decarbonize the zinc recycling industry. Um, zinc recycling, you would think that's better for the environment than taking it out of the ground, right? Well, actually, when it comes to zinc, it's more carbon intensive to recycle it than it is to take new zinc out of the ground because they have to use these massive coal-fired furnaces to do the, the extraction. So these people have worked out a way where they can use a process which is based on, it's an electrical process, and it's a, an electrolysis process rather than a carbon-intensive process using heat and using coal. So these are the sorts of technologies we're getting behind where we say, okay, if that's successful and that becomes the global norm, that one technology can remove 1% of global emissions. Those are the sorts of things we like to get behind. I'm assuming you used a similar framework in your analysis when you first examined Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So there was a, a point at which we went, these technologies are fantastic and we want to keep investing in these technologies. And last year, we looked at what was happening with uh, climate change. We looked at how our models were all underestimating climate change and we were saying, hmm, these technologies are not going to make a difference until 2030 or later. And then we looked at what the IPCC, the, Internet, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, was saying about climate change. And we really had what we did in the next eight years was what was going to make the biggest difference to whether we stayed within that 1.5 degrees of global warming that global leaders agree we need to stay below if we're to keep the, the world uh, sustainable for human life. And we realized that the technologies we're investing in, whilst essential, they weren't going to help with that eight-year time horizon. And we did some more analysis and we we looked at what the United Nations Environment Program was saying. We realized what well, they were saying that actually the narrative has changed based on our recent research to say methane emissions are our number one concern. The, the UNEP, United Nations Environment Programme, executive director recently said that methane emissions represent our strongest lever to reduce climate change in the next 25 years. So this is a new message. Everyone's been talking carbon dioxide, right? And, and of course, that's still a huge part of the picture. And the, the new urgency is actually slashing our methane emissions because they are, as we know, 84 times more powerful than carbon dioxide over a 20-year period or 30 times more powerful over a 100-year period. In other words, they're a lot worse. So we started to look at, hmm, well, what can we do to mitigate these methane emissions? And to cut a long story short, looking at a whole range of different technologies, the only one that was both economically, logistically feasible and number three was ready today as opposed to ready in eight to 10 years time was Bitcoin mining. Because the thing a lot of people fail to grapple is there may be more quote unquote perfect solutions such as methane sequestration, but there's a big problem. Um, number one, that technology isn't ready. Well, that's a problem. What are you going to do in the meantime when we've got, since you and I started talking, we've had 45,000 tons of methane that have gone into the atmosphere. We're just going to wait till we get the perfect solution. Well, there's an adage in the environmental sector, which is that the perfect is the enemy of the good. 
And you can spend a long time waiting for the perfect solution, but you've got to go with the technologies that exist right now. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that any sort of um, emission mitigation, whether you agree with it and whether you like it or not, is irrelevant. We live in a world where things get done when there is a financial incentive to do it. Now, you can say that's not fair, that should be different. Um, and, and I'd agree with that. That'd be great if we lived in a world that's different. But that's not the world we live in. And us wishing that it was different is not going to change that. So the reality is when you find the financial incentives for actions, those are the actions that will occur. So we cannot regulate our way out of climate disaster. We can't just start finding people and saying, we'll punish you and we'll use a stick. We've actually got to use a carrot. That's from a behavior change point of view, that's going to be much more likely to succeed. And from a point of view of just understanding the world in which we live and the economic drivers for change, it's going to be much more likely to succeed. So, for example, if you have a, a landfill and your alternatives are, number one, you could put a flare stack up, which costs you a million dollars to put it up, and then hundreds of thousands of dollars per year to maintain it. And even then, it's only 92% efficient and 8% of the methane still goes into the atmosphere. Or you could do something which is 99.9% .9 efficient. It removes almost all of the methane and it doesn't cost the landfill operator anything. In fact, they get paid for the electricity that's produced. Well, which one is, do you think is going to be more likely to, to get traction? You're comparing something which has a high cost and isn't even that good at mitigating the methane versus something which turns a liability into an asset and is almost 100% able to mitigate that methane. And so those are the solutions that uh, we, have to, we absolutely have to get behind. And then you look at alternatives and you say, well, could we use that, um, that gas to, for something else? Could we, could we use it for generating electricity? Could we use that electricity for EVs or for hydrogen or for hospitals? or for?" Um, and you start to look at it, and these are good questions to ask. And we should ask these questions because you want to get the most useful use of that power. And you realize very soon that actually it's just not practical because unless you have something which can use it on site, that's not a hospital. You're not going to put hospitals next to landfills. It's a health hazard. You're not going to put residential housing units next to hospitals. It's, they're not going to sell. So you have to get something which is either on site. Otherwise, you've got a big transport cost. And the cost of that is enormous. Gas pipelines, $5 million per, per mile. Building up pylons, $2 million per mile. So it's not going to happen. You can look at calculators on the EPA's website, which will show you why we still have a problem with flaring methane into the air. And the reason for that is there hasn't been an economical way to get rid of it. And now there is. And Bitcoin mining provides a way to, to monetize it, to get rid of that methane and to do something which can actually, right now it's available, can make a huge difference. So we looked at those factors, but then we also got more interested and we said, well, let's actually quantify it. Let's quantify it. If we, if we did this, how much methane could it take out of the atmosphere? Um, and then things got really interesting because we said, well, what if we did a fund? And this fund was specializing in investing in the technologies which would make the most urgent difference to the most urgent to reduce gases in the world right now, which is methane. And we factored in that if we put a million dollars into a fund and we invested that into Bitcoin mining operations that are mitigating methane, that for every million dollars that went in, that would reduce over. 500,000 tons of CO2 equivalent per year, over 500,000 tons of CO2 equivalent per year. So in other words, every dollar 
is reducing half a ton of carbon dioxide, net carbon dioxide equivalent emissions. And in terms of a, a dollar put in, if you look at the carbon markets right now, um, you know, for a ton of carbon, you might pay $50. And what this is saying is actually for $1, you can mitigate half. In other words, for $2, you can mitigate a ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. So we, we do a lot of the numbers and and making sure that every dollar that we put into this is going to reduce as much carbon dioxide equivalent as we possibly can. And uh, that's where I get to geek out and and go through all the facts and stats and making sure that we're being responsible with our investment and doing things that are going to make a huge difference to the world. Is there a temperature uh, correlation or connection to uh, that amount of greenhouse gas? Yeah, so the temperature calculation, so I, I did some research on this, and if you look at the potential for Bitcoin mining, this is just in flared gas from the oil and gas industry and landfills alone. And then you work out, well, of those, some of them, you're going to have alternative uses for the power. So in other words, where, where a landfill is close to a municipal area, um, then you don't have the expense of building gas pipelines because you already have one, or you can generate your own power station. So let's take them out of the picture. Um, but when there isn't any, when it's not close to a gas pipeline, where it's not close to pipelines, where there isn't other potential uses, if we just look at those alone, the ones that only Bitcoin mining is an economic and logistical solution for, and you total them up, the the net climate impact of that, it would mitigate 50% of the United Nations Environmental Program's target for methane reductions. So they've said if we can reduce methane reductions by 45%, that will prevent 0.3 degrees Celsius of global warming. And Bitcoin mining by itself can be responsible for half of that entire target. So in other words, Bitcoin mining can be responsible for mitigating 0.15 degrees Celsius of global warming. Now, that might not sound like a lot, 0.15 degrees. It's massive because we're already 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial levels of global warming. So we've only got that difference between 1.1 and 1.5. That's 0.4 of a degree. That's not a lot of wiggle room. And if 0.15 of that, that's a lot relative to how much wiggle room we've got left before we have some very pronounced feedback loops, which are irreversible in terms of climate change. So uh, the potential is absolutely enormous. And the cool thing about it is, as I say, this is this is ready today. It's not something we have to wait for. It's not something we, we hope it's in a lab. We hope it can scale up. It's ready to go today. It's working today. It's mitigating methane today. That's why we get so excited about it. Yeah, that's incredible. Are these sites uh, that you're referring to just within the United States or worldwide? Uh, this is worldwide. However, having said that, when you're looking at landfill gas, for example, um, the, the United States is a disproportionately high, which probably doesn't surprise you because there's some fairly um, high amounts of waste per individual. So it's a disproportionately high emitter of landfill gas. And does it also include biomass um, and other sources of methane? So that's not even factoring in other sources of methane. That's simply through landfill gas and flared gas from the oil and gas industry alone. If you, you're absolutely right, methane is also emitted from waste wastewater, huge emitter. It's when you have um, hydropower plants and you have natural organic 
decay that creates methane emissions. It's biogas from farming. It's wherever you have in the food and beverage industry, uh, the palm oil industry in Indonesia, we have big piles of the byproducts of the palm industry that just sit there and they rot without the presence of air. They emit methane. It's rum distilleries. There are massive sources of, and it's also orphaned oil wells. Uh, there's a lot of oil wells around the world tens of thousands of them that are simply leaching methane into the atmosphere because no one owns them, no one's taking responsibility for them. Year after year, they're leaching methane and the costs to plug them up are around $50,000 plus per unit. But again, if you can turn that into an asset and use that to power Bitcoin mining, you're turning an environmental liability into an asset. So that 0.15 degrees is not even factoring in all those other potential uses of methane. It's just looking at the major two. If you start to factor those two in as well, you, you're probably talking about half of the entire uh, wiggle room we have left. In other words, it could be in advance of 0.2 degrees Celsius that you're looking at as potential. How do you respond to people when they say, well, that's just going to keep the oil and gas industry alive or that's going to uh, subsidize the palm oil industry, which has its own problems? You know, there's there's a couple of things here. Um, we could speculate about whether that's true or not. I don't believe that is true. Um, I believe that what will keep the oil and gas industry alive will be factors um, beyond whether they can um, mitigate their methane successfully or not. Um, oil and gas industry has been generating around a billion dollars in profit per day as a global sector for a very long time. This is peanuts compared to that. And it's about, well, you know, which would you prefer? Would you prefer an uninhabitable planet because we didn't deal with our methane emissions? Or would you prefer the possibility that this may be um, helping an industry which you personally despise? Um, I don't have a great deal of love for the oil and gas industry myself. Um, I spent time protesting against their explorations off the coast of New Zealand. Um, but we can't allow our personal feelings and antagonism to stand in the way of doing the right thing. And if the right thing is saying, hey, we've actually got a bigger concern here, which is get the methane out of the air or we're all going to die. Um, let's actually tend to what matters more and, and put our, our speculation about who it may or may not be helping um, to one side for now. Absolutely. Well said. I'm, I'm curious to know, there are already several Bitcoin uh, mining companies doing this worldwide. And I'm wondering if we have any data available already uh, about the reduction in methane or is it just estimates? Um, yeah, look, we have that. Look, it's early stage. So I would say that Bitcoin mining using methane is a little bit like where Bitcoin was back in 2011. So it's very young. However, it is exponentially growing already. We have gone from one company doing this a year ago or a year and a half ago to more than 10 companies today that are doing it. I would estimate that another year's time, we'd have more than 40 companies doing it. It's growing at an exponential rate. And there have been some companies that have come out and they've they've made some estimates. We can look at it in terms of trees, actually. So this is a forward calculation. So this is one Bitcoin mining company using landfills. So their estimate is that in this is one company. In the next six years, they can mitigate the release of 143 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. That's simply through Bitcoin mining using landfill gas. Uh, so that'd be the equivalent of planting 2.3 billion trees and having them grow for 10 years. It'd be the equivalent of taking 31 million cars off the road. 
That's what one landfall gas mitigating company using Bitcoin mining can do within six years. That's just incredible. It's pretty phenomenal. I mean, the numbers are are insanely good. And and as I say, if you to, to get some context, there is nothing like if I look at all the different um, climate technologies that I've seen, and I've probably seen more than 250 of them in the last decade, there is nothing that comes close to that. There are things that are maybe cooler technologies that are sexier technologies. This is pretty low tech solution, but who cares? It's available today. Um, it works and it takes the most dangerous greenhouse gas that would have gone into our atmosphere, out of our atmosphere, and it provides the economic incentives to make that happen, whereas other technologies or regulatory frameworks have not found a way to do that yet. Wow, I'm kind of uh, in awe right now with those numbers. We, we can look at the numbers uh, and cite the data. I'm curious to know your thoughts on like the average show and how they may experience Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining in particular. How is it brought to a, a nationwide, worldwide attention? For example, is it through greenhouse gas reduction? Is it through fewer blackouts? Is it through uh, cheaper prices? How does that play out in the day-to-day -day lives of an average person? Or does it? Yeah, look, I think it will play out and it'll be different messages for different communities. So, for example, there's a, a Bitcoin mining company in New Zealand who are using hydropower. And what they did is they reached out to the community and they just started chatting to them. Um, and the community had no idea about what Bitcoin mining was. And all they explained was very simple. They said, look, a lot of the time, um, there's a lot of this hydropower that just gets wasted because there's a lot of rain here and there's more rain than can actually be used by the grid. You can't store it. I mean, sure, at one time you might have batteries, but even batteries after four hours, you can't store beyond that. And if you had flooding that's going for days in a row, once the batteries are full, they're full. And so what do you do with all the extra capacity? And they said, look, it's just getting wasted. And because it's getting wasted, that's um, that's an opportunity where this this local grid could be earning revenue, which they're not. And if they're earning revenue for it, that's actually good for everyone because it makes them more profitable. And if they're more profitable, um, that means that your electricity prices are going to be less. And so sometimes it's just explaining that. And these are these are this is not greenwash. This is not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. These these are just truths. Um, another possibility might be if you're using curtailed solar energy. M most people don't understand that there's nuances, right? And they see a new customer of electricity coming on board and they think, well, that's that's going to compete with me, right? They're going to compete with me for this electricity. And it's about explaining that actually there's two different types of customer. There's rival customers and there's non-rival customers. And Bitcoin mining is a non-rival customer. And what that means is you have an economic incentive as a Bitcoin mining company not to compete for electricity when everyone else is competing. Why? Because that's when electricity prices are going to be high. And when electricity prices is high, then that's going to be uneconomic to mine, period. So you have an inbuilt economic incentive not to compete. So what does that mean? It means you use the electricity when other people aren't using it. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that you're going to be using solar power in the day where it otherwise would have got spilled into the ground because no one needed it. It means that you're going to be using wind power in midnight when no one else would have been using it. And what does that mean? Well, that means that the utilities won't have to pay or the grid operators won't have to pay these 
solar farms, all these wind farms, money to curtail their energy. Because right now they have these contracts and it says, hey, if we as the grid owner or we as the utility have to ask you to curtail your energy, in other words, not give it back to the grid, we actually have to pay you a penalty. That makes us less, less economic. And how do we become more economic? But well, it means that consumers pay more for electricity so we can stay profitable. So now they can stay more profitable. They can earn more money, which means that the prices which residential users of electricity pay will be lower because that energy was not being wasted. It was being monetized. So sometimes it'll be explaining the economic benefit. Sometimes it'll be explaining to people that if you want to build out a renewable grid, which pretty much everyone wants to do, there's a few people, a few lobbyists or a few people who think it's a bad idea because um, it makes it less stable and we should rely on fossil fuels because they're more stable. And from a particular angle, they're actually right. Um, I don't like to say it as an environmentalist, but yes, gas and coal plants have an advantage over wind farms in that you can increase or decrease supply. You can't do that with solar. You can't do that with wind. You can do it with gas. You can do it with coal plants. You can put more gas. You can crank up the gas turbine. When demand is high, you can crank it down when it's low. You can put more coal on the fire for that coal plant. When you need more power, you can crank it down. You cannot create more sun than exists. You cannot suddenly create more wind than exists. So there are big issues when you make your grid more renewable-based. And when you explain to people some of these issues, it's not an excuse to keep us burning coal. Not at all. I don't go to that point. I say, no, there's no question we need to make it renewable. There's no question we need to get rid of these coal-fired plants. And there's also no question we have to, we have to mitigate the very real additional challenges that variable renewable energy creates for the stability of the grid. Because if you're a grid owner, your number one incentive is to keep the grid stable. It's not just about low electricity prices, it's about low stable electricity. When you have blackouts, businesses fail and people die and grid operators lose their jobs. So that's what they care about most is grid stability. So when a grid operator sees a whole lot of new solar or wind power coming onto the grid, they're freaking out because what they're seeing is new is that they have less control and less ability to match supply and demand. And then people say, well, how do we solve that? Well, I know we get lots of batteries. Well, again, batteries is only part of the solution. Once, once the battery is full, it's full. Um, batteries require huge amounts of resources. They're very expensive. And there's a risk that when you're using that battery power, once you discharge it back to the grid, um, it might be uneconomical. You might be putting that battery power back into the grid at a time where you get very little money for it. So it's not profitable. But again, if you can have a solar farm or a wind farm that is using that surplus capacity that no one needs, and they can earn money through it through doing Bitcoin mining, then suddenly a whole lot of problems get solved. It solves the problem of stabilizing the grid because you have an incredibly flexible customer who the grid can contact and say, hey, can you power down? Because um, we're in danger of reaching blackout if you don't, and they can power down immediately. They can also power up when there's a surplus because what a lot of people don't realize, if you have too much power on the grid and not enough demand, that makes the grid unstable. That can cause blackouts. So they can soak up demand and help stabilize it in times when there's not enough demand. And they can also provide that first customer for solar and wind farms, which means that you're going to actually build out the grid. Again, most people don't realize there are five-year interconnection queues to get onto the grid in some parts of America. The average is 3.7 years for a solar plant or a wind plant to get onto the grid. 
we haven't got 3.7 years to wait. And then you've got a 15% chance of being accepted because of these issues with um, the grid operators having reservations about letting too much renewable power without balancing the, the, the instability that can be created and in their inability to balance supply and demand. And the more you look into the nuances, the more you start talking to people who have researched deeply, grid operators, utilities, solar engineers, um, wind farm operators, who have looked deeply into these issues, they all converge, no matter where they start, they're converging on the same viewpoint, which is the only way you're going to create a stable, renewable-based grid is you have not only battery power, but you also have what's called demand response. In other words, we're going from an environment where you had very flexible suppliers of electricity, generators, coal plants and the gas plants, who were dirty but flexible, um, to something which is quote-unquote clean but inflexible. So where are we going to get that flexibility? Flexibility of customers. Customers who can power up and power down their demand. And again, there's all sorts of possibilities. Bitcoin mining is not the only one, but it does happen to be the most flexible because it's the only one where you can interrupt the process without loss of data. You can't do that with a data center. It's the only one where you can do it for a number of beyond four hours. You can't do that for the steel factory. Steel starts to harden. And so you look at all the different types of demand response. And again, Bitcoin mining comes up trumps. It ticks every single box in terms of flexibility, in terms of measurability, in terms of the economic incentives of the user of electricity being aligned to the economic incentives and the stability incentives of the grid operators. Um, and what's important here is this is not some people who are wanting to legitimate Bitcoin mining who are coming up with these solutions. These are the grid operators, the utilities, and the solar engineers themselves who are coming up with these conclusions. They have no vested interest in Bitcoin. In fact, the, the CEO of ERCOT, which is the grid for Texas, he was on a phone call recently with a whole lot of Bitcoin mining companies. And he said, well, I don't hold any Bitcoin because I'm risk averse, but I believe in, this, in crypto mining, he calls it. I believe in crypto mining because I can see the tremendous advantage that it's giving in terms of helping to find a home for solar energy in the first place. And then when we need that flexibility, we can instantly contact them and they'll power down. This is the, the grid operator himself. We spent 20, 30 years understanding the intricacies of how grids work and how to keep them stable. Are there other downsides to data centers that make them less ideal than Bitcoin mining? So a traditional data center versus a Bitcoin mining data center, you mean? Correct. You see a lot of the, the critiques saying, well, why don't we just build more data centers instead of using mining as a flexible load? Well, there's a very simple reason, and that is that traditional data centers are, for the most part, not interruptible. So in other words, what's important here is you need a customer that you can interrupt. Boom. It's like, okay, it's six o'clock. We've got a, a heat wave. Everyone's come home from work. They've turned on their air conditioners all at once. Holy crap, if we don't power down our flexible users immediately, then we have grid instability. You can't contact Amazon Web Services and say, hey, can you please power down your data center? You know, Netflix goes down, Disney goes down. You, you have processes that are running that cannot just simply be interrupted. The unique thing about Bitcoin and the, the amazing thing is this was completely accidental is Bitcoin is not running one process like a data center that may take hours to use. It's running trillions of processes per second, which means you can power it down. You don't lose anything. It's incredibly unique in that regard. And that's the reason that it has flexibility that traditional data centers do not. What question marks or concerns 
remain for you regarding Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining specifically? Are there negative externalities that still concern you? Yeah. Look, any technology is neither good nor bad. It's about how you use it, right? You could use solar panels in a way which had was was a net negative to the environment. It would be possible, right? Depending on the customers who are using it, um, maybe they're using it in a responsible way. Who knows? So the value of a technology is really down to how it's used. I mean, maybe there's some technologies you could argue that are just inherently bad, but for the most part, for the most part, like the technology we're using today, we could be using this technology to spread our own agenda. We could be planning some terrorist event using this technology, or we could be using it to spread information. So it's it's the people who define whether the technology is net positive or net negative. And it is possible to fuel Bitcoin mining using sources of electricity, which are not renewable, which are not mitigating methane. It is possible that you could go and you could find every coal plant plant on the planet that shut down. You could start it up again using Bitcoin mining. That's possible. And so the negative externalities are the possibilities that we could use it for sources which increase our emissions without providing any stabilization of the grid. That's possible that we could use it that way. So what we have to make sure we're doing is that we're not using it in that way. We're using it for things that are using re- renewable or predominantly renewable sources, or better still, carbon negative sources such as methane mitigation. And we're using it in ways which are helping to accelerate the build out of the renewable grid. Now, again, you have to look at this as a pragmatist and think, well, that's all very well that it has that potential, but is that actually occurring? And you have to look at the data. And so we've done that. And you have to look at the trend lines. Is it trending towards more renewable? Is it trending towards more carbon negative? Or is it actually trending in the opposite direction? Is, are these all just theoretical arguments? But actually, the reality says, no, it's firing up more coal plants. Now, when you look at what's happening over the last uh, year and a half, it's actually getting more renewable-based. It's getting a lot more renewable-based. And again, you have to look through, let's just put it this way. Not everyone would agree with that conclusion. If you look at, there's a, there's a Cambridge report that actually says that Bitcoin mining has become more carbon intensive since the exodus from China. Now, that's wrong. Um, and I can tell you exactly why that report is wrong. It's wrong because of a very simple, erroneous assumption. Um, and that is that their assumption was that Bitcoin mining went from China, which was using hydropower half the year, and they migrated to Kazakhstan, which was using coal for 99% of the time, and a few other places in the US, which are again using predominantly fossil fuels. But actually, that's not what happened. What actually happened was when my, the mining companies migrated from China, well, the first thing is they're still in China. 20% of the global hash rate is still in China. And, and I know this because I've spoken to actual mining companies and people who are doing Bitcoin mining in China. I've looked at the actual IP addresses. I've looked at the um, whereabouts that's happening in the world. Now, you could say, well, you just because the IP address is there, you don't know if the mining company is there, and, and that is true to some extent. But you can get a pretty good idea of how much of the global hash rate is still in China. And through different angles, it looks like it's about 20%. 20% of global hash rate is still coming from China. So what has happened? Well, what's happened in China is that it's still possible to do Bitcoin mining, but it's no longer possible to do Bitcoin mining using coal as your energy source. If you try that, you will be shut down by the Chinese government because they have such stringent emission standards. Same things happened in Iran. In Iran, they've banned Bitcoin mining using 
coal because that fossil fuels power most of the grid in Iran. So Bitcoin mining in Iran has gone from 3.4% of global hash to 0.1% of global hash. It's virtually nothing. In Kazakhstan, again, the Cambridge report said, well, a lot of that hash rate went to Kazakhstan. Well, it went there temporarily. And then Kazakhstan did the same thing. They said, well, we're not going to allow Bitcoin miners um, to be using our predominantly coal-powered and fossil fuel-bound grid as a source of electricity. And so they place bans. And so now the, the hash rate from Kazakhstan has dropped off a cliff as well. And the other thing is that when the, the mining companies were in China, they weren't using renewable energy for half the year. Uh, they were only using renewable energy during the rainy season. The rainy season is three months of the year. So they were using hydro for three months, and they were using coal for nine months. And that was more than 50% of the global hash rate. Since the ban, now they're using solar and hydro for 12 months of the year. And that's 20% of global hash rate. So it's cleaned up immensely in China. People are no longer in Iran for the most part. Most of them have gone from Kazakhstan. So that's cleaned up the energy sources. And where they've gone is predominantly, and I know because I'm speaking to Bitcoin mining companies on a regular basis, all of the growth, all of the new growth and new mining companies is using renewable sources, often behind the meter. In other words, they're not even connected to the grid. They're doing direct relationships with wind farms, with solar farms, with hydro farms, or they're looking to do methane mitigation. And that is growing. Those two sources are growing exponentially. So it's a long answer to your question, but really it's the, the question is, that can it be used to do negative things? Of course it can, like any technology. Any technology in the world, you can fuel it from a clean source or a non-clean source. So Bitcoin mining is not unique in that regard. That's not a failure of Bitcoin mining. That's a failure of technology. And that's a failure of our ability as, as humanity right now to be able to give an audit trace that tells you whether you've got green electrons in your grid or not. There are people working on that solution, but it's not ready today. In the meantime, the best way we can do it is if every industry in the world attempts to use as much green energy and carbon negative energy as you can. And again, if you do an audit of the Bitcoin mining industry, it's actually leading the world in terms of its the amount of renewable energy that it uses, in terms of the amount of carbon negative methane mitigation uh, potential that it's creating for people and for the planet. Just a couple more questions here before we wrap up. This one is a little bit of an, an aside, but I'm, I'm curious to get your response here. One of the videos that you watched during your, your, your research process here of, of learning more about Bitcoin was the debate between Lynn Alden and Alex DeVries, and that helped shape your opinion on Bitcoin. I'm curious to know what it was about Alex's input, his opinions, that you didn't agree with or found questionable. Oh, um, a number of things. Uh, so I look at this as a as a venture capitalist uh, from a due diligence point of view. And when you're doing due diligence on a company, you you learn to identify spin pretty fast. You, you learn to identify what I'd call layer one information pretty fast. And by that, I mean stuff that'll fool some people if you don't look into it deeply, but very quickly peels away at the first layer of, of intellectual scrutiny. And so there were just a number of statements that were factually incorrect. Um, and it didn't take much analysis to work out they were factually incorrect. For example, uh, one of the statistics which I looked into, I thought that's interesting, let's do my own research, was the, the figure of the amount of um, energy usage per transaction of Bitcoin. And I kind of thought, that's a bit strange. Let's do some more research. And then I worked out very fast, that, like anyone who knows how Bitcoin works, that Bitcoin doesn't use energy per transaction. That's a completely false metric. 
what he's done is he's looked at the total amount of energy, he's looked at the total amount of transactions, and he's divided one by the other to create this, this metric which doesn't have any basis in reality. It's, it's, it's akin to, and I'll give you an analogy, it's a little bit like I could say, okay, New Zealand's GDP is $100 billion. Great. Okay, we have um, 10 million sheep in the country. Okay, great. So we can calculate our GDP per sheep. I mean, we can create a metric around that, right? By dividing one by the other. And then you can create some things and say, oh, oh, look, if we had um, twice as many sheep, we'd have twice as many GP. It's It's like, no, we wouldn't, because it's a spurious metric. The two have no correlation to each other. So again, it was just intellectually disingenuous, and I believe he knows this. Um, the second thing was, you have to look at who your information source is, and you have to ask the question: Well, well, might this information source actually have a vested interest in providing a different, a, a particular narrative? And well, uh, Mr. Tabriz is a paid employee of the Central Bank of the Netherlands. Is it just possible that a central banking organization? might have a vested interest in a rival to central bankers that disintermediates central banking, that they might have a vested interest in Bitcoin not succeeding and their own central bank digital currency succeeding. Yes, that's a possibility. Now, does that mean that none of his arguments have validity? No, it doesn't, but it means we should be suspicious. And when we put together that combination with some of the um, intellectually disingenuous information, we start to say, hang on a minute, I smell what's happening here. This is the smell of spin. Um, and then you look at some of the arguments such as, well, Bitcoin mining just loves fossil fuels. And again, if you're looking at that from a certain argument, you can say, well, well yes, superficially, I, I can see how that statement is not false. Uh, Bitcoin mining loves methane. It loves taking methane out of the atmosphere. So in a sense, that's true, but it's also incredibly misleading. Because when you are burning fossil fuels that would have stayed in the ground, we want to stop that. When you're doing, burning fossil fuels called methane that would have stayed in the air, would have gone into the air, you want to increase that because methane is such a, a, a global warming substance. So again, that's, that's disingenuous. And those are really the main two. And the third one, the third one is that um, any technology that you look at to really gain a true and partial view of its effectiveness, you have to do two things. Number one, you have to look at what's the value that that technology creates. So solar panels, for example. And secondly, you have to look at its life cycle emissions. So the argument basically went with like this. It went, Bitcoin uses energy. Okay, I'm with you so far. That's true. Yes. Okay. Some of that energy is non-renewable. It's fossil fuels. Okay. I kind of see what you're saying here. Um, Therefore, it's bad. What? Hang on a minute. How do we reach from from level two to level three? You can use that argument with any technology in the world. Solar solar panels use electricity in their construction. True. Some of that electricity, some of that energy is fossil fuel. In fact, most of it is. Okay, true. Therefore, we should ban solar panels. Therefore, solar panels is bad. See, when it's solar panels, we can see that that logic is false because we haven't taken into consideration the net environmental benefit of the technology. When it's Bitcoin mining, however, when the environmental benefit is less obvious than it is with solar, that false logic goes unnoticed. So we have to look at things objectively. We have to say, hey, we're going to look at a technology. We have to look at its carbon footprint, which any technology will have. I'm yet to see a technology that doesn't. We also have to look at its net environmental benefit. And only when we put both together can we do a true audit and make a statement about its net contribution. 
And when you start to look at what Bitcoin mining can do for the build out of the renewable grid from methane mitigation, it more than many times over mitigates for the relatively small carbon footprint it has in at much the same ratio as solar technology itself. I would say that for every um, ton of CO2 emissions that solar creates, it probably mitigates 15. Bitcoin mining, it's about 10. For every ton of CO2 emissions that it creates, it mitigates 10, or it has the potential to mitigate 10. It's not doing that yet because it hasn't reached that point of um, ubiquity that solar has, but it has the potential. So in the same way, we should not have... Solar actually took 30 years to get to the stage where it was... Um, it had a neutral benefit to the environment. The first 30 years, it was it was in carbon debt that whole time. And uh, Bitcoin mining will reach that inflection point much sooner. It's only going to take 15 years till it becomes a net environmental contributor. So it'll reach it much faster than solar. So so those are some of the things that I, um, I found disingenuous um, that didn't stand up to that first layer of scrutiny. Uh, and then the final thing is, which is really important, is... I think a lot of people have trouble with Bitcoin because the they don't understand its utility, its usefulness. And and it's what we see is we see wildly fluctuating prices. We see volatility. We see some people getting very rich off it. We see that people saying it's a Ponzi scheme. This is what we typically read about it. What we don't see about it, and we don't hear about it in the West, we don't hear about how people in Ukraine are using that to travel across borders as political refugees and taking Bitcoin with them so that the women and children who are setting up in Poland can restart their lives financially. And we're not talking a small number of people. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people. What we don't see is the women in Afghanistan who are legally discriminated against by the Taliban and prevented from having a bank account that now, because they can have Bitcoin, are actually able to pay, to be paid, and businesses can be set up that actually pay women that give economic sovereignty. And what we don't see is the people who don't have their savings in, eaten away by hyperinflation, who now have a store of value um, so that they have economic sovereignty. And what we don't see is the people in Latin America who are getting remittance payments from people who live in the US, who rather than having to pay 20% of that every month on Western money order uh, remittance fees, are now getting 100% of that, which can be the difference between living above and below the breadline. And these are happening in the millions. We don't see the people in Nigeria who are fighting against an oppressive regime who have no freedom of speech, who where the financial system is, is weaponized against them to freeze their bank accounts if they speak out against the government, who now are able to use Bitcoin as a means where they can, they can still have a voice and not have their assets frozen and still continue to speak out against social injustices. So Bitcoin's very unique in that its utility is felt in the developing world first um, and then the West last. And so it's also important that we get people to understand, and, and you'll understand this, this very well, is the utility actually starts predominantly in the developing world first. Just because we don't experience a personal value of it. I remember one person saying, well, you know, tumble drives, they use more energy, but they do something useful. They help me get my washing clean. Bitcoin does nothing useful. Well, actually, it does nothing useful to you or nothing useful that you have seen. But that doesn't mean it's not useful to people elsewhere on the planet. That's where we need to open our, our eyes a bit wider. Well, I was going to ask you um, what you would tell your peers, your colleagues who don't agree with you uh, on Bitcoin. If there was one thing that you could help them learn about Bitcoin outside of the environmental data uh, in the understanding of its importance, 
what would that be? But I imagine it's that latter. <laughs> I'd tell them to watch the movie The Big Short to understand the context in which Bitcoin was created. And I'd tell them to look at the first ever Genesis block, which has the embedded message, which says, Chancellor on the brink of second bank bailout. And to remember that Bitcoin was created as a response to incredible economic injustice because of cozy relationships between regulators and central bankers, because of unethical behaviors and illegal behaviors of people in large investment banks that went completely unpunished. And the people on the streets suffered and the small business owners suffered and the banks were bailed out. And quantitative easing caused one of the biggest wealth transfers in a generation from the poor to the middle class and the rich. And Bitcoin was created to stop this social and financial injustice, to stop the possibility that systems of money could be corrupted so easily, and to show that in an environment where you cannot trust the people who are close to the money to do the best things for the people, if you create a peer-to-peer grassroots system for the people, then you have the basis for transformation of our financial system. Now, it's not going to solve all the world's problems, but unless you solve that problem, then you cannot create social justice. Start with that point, and then from there, understand its utility, and then from there, stay curious and look below the surface. Do deep analysis, not shallow analysis. Ask who your information sources are. Ask if what you're reading in the media may just be the lazy, non-investigative journalism of someone who's retorting a single site that was created by a single employee of a central banker to, who has a vested interest in the non-success of Bitcoin and start to inquire and look at things more deeply. That's what I would say. Daniel, what gives you hope? <laughs> you know, working in the, in the sector that, that I work in gives me a huge amount of hope because I get to see all the smart people who are building all the smart technologies and the smart responses to um, some of the world's biggest problems. And I also work as a volunteer and I, I, I see a lot of the work that's done in the looking at rebuilding some of the, the rivers of the world that have dried out and looking at reinstituting the flow of these rivers. And, and I see the tremendous work that's been done by people that goes unreported because it doesn't sell uh, newspapers or online newspapers. But I see these stories all the time, the stories of the technology, the stories of innovation, and the stories of people getting together to create solutions. And Margaret Mead once said, never underestimate the capability of a small group of people to change the world for the better. In fact, it's the only thing that ever did. I'm paraphrasing a little. Um, and that's what I've seen. And that's what I was fortunate to see as a child growing up was where a small group of people could come together and they could win and they could create justice. So people give me hope when they work with other people to the common good of humanity. Daniel, I think you've stepped into your father's shoes just fine. <laughs> Please tell the listeners where they can find you and your work. Yeah, best place to find me is on Twitter. So at DSBatten, it's B-A-T-T-E-N. And if they want to go deeper into the weeds, into some of my research, they can look at my website, which is batcoins, uh, with a Z, dot com. Thank you so much. That was a true pleasure. Hey, don't forget to visit sunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner to buy solar cells that will power the projects that inspire you. 
You'll earn monthly Bitcoin payments for 20 years from the clean energy your solar cells generate. And the organizations you power gain access to affordable, reliable, clean energy. With SunExchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin to make a positive impact on the planet. Progressive Bitcoin listeners get a free solar cell with their first purchase. So get started at sunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Progressive Bitcoiner. If you enjoyed the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and please leave a review. And don't forget, we have a website, theprogressivebitcoiner.com, where we have a lot of great content on Bitcoin and progressive issues. Thanks again for tuning in.